0: I'm Melissa Roach with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal talks with Kevin Bruniel about his new book, Settler Memory, The Disavowal of Indigeneity and the Politics of Race in the United States. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again uh, this week. We have our special guest, Kevin Bruniel, who's recently written a book, Settler Memory, The Disavowal of Indigeneity and the Politics of Race in the United States. Welcome, Kevin.
1: Thank you very much, Anne. Um, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. I'm wondering if we can begin with you
0: introducing yourself a little bit.
1: Sure. I was born and raised right in the sort of general area you are on the um, traditional territories of the Sliwatu, Squamish, and Musqueam peoples. Born in Vancouver at St. Paul's Hospital, in fact. Raised primarily in Coquitlam and uh, did my undergraduate at Simon Fraser University. A lot of my life was, the first quarter of my life was in Canada, which actually in many ways has an influence of how I ended up reading things when I went to the U.S., And then went to the United States for grad school in 1991 to the new school. And there had many different interests, got involved in anarchist on the ground politics there, also became very interested and intrigued with how in U.S. political science, I think it's getting better now, but there was almost no attention to indigenous people's politics. And that was really what my dissertation and my book, the first book, The Third Space of Sovereignty, was trying to address how to think about Indigenous people's politics in relationship to the U.S. settler colonial state in a framework that was really trying to understand and respect what Indigenous peoples were saying in all the diversity of arguments that weren't simply about being included within the U.S. settler colonial state, assimilated to it. So that was my first project. And then after that, to this project now, when I'm thinking about the relationship between race, discourse and politics and indigeneity. So that's my scholarly history. I teach, I'm a professor of politics at Babson College, which is just outside Boston. I've been there for now 20 years, which is really hard to believe at this point. Um, I'm an old man there, and I teach uh, political theory, U.S. politics, but my main courses are around issues of critical race and indigenous studies. That's the name of the sort of advanced course I teach. Radical politics, such as I taught a course on Black Lives Matter and Standing Rock, and a lot of stuff around political theory and injustice and, and inequality. So I've been there for about 20 years, and I sort of live partially in Somerville, and I'm allowed to come down to Brooklyn every so often and hang up here, where I am now. So I'm very much an East Coaster now. I'm now a U.S.-Canadian dual citizen, and so that's, that's sort of the trajectory of my life. With this
0: uh, project in writing settler memory, I'm wondering if you can talk about where the project
1: sort of uh, began for you. Absolutely. Part of it is after I finished Third Space of Sovereignty, it was really about U.S.-Indigenous relations. In terms of on-the-ground politics here in the U.S. around, you know, obviously police violence, general white supremacy, issues of mass incarceration, on-the-ground politics of things we've seen through Black Lives Matter, and also teaching in a U.S. context around race Um, and on my own political interests and concerns, it became clear as I started to engage in certain teaching the relationship between race histories, right, especially around white and black relations and indigenous politics, especially around issues of dispossession, indigenous activism, settler colonialism. And also in political movements, there was a there was almost a disconnect between discourses around race and discourses around indigeneity. Discourses around white supremacy and slavery and discourses around um, settler colonialism, genocide and territorial dispossession. And also the political movements, black radical politics, indigenous radical politics. It was not so much that people didn't know, especially on the left liberal side, but more so the left about these movements, but there was no sense of how to bring them together into a conversation to understand how they are very intertwined, not collapsed as the same thing, but very intertwined. And I found this in my teaching, uh, how to teach students to not just sort of say, okay, we're going to have our our week on black radical politics and then on Asian American politics and on indigenous politics to understand how we have to think about these things, both with their own histories, but also very much intertwined that one can understand, for example, slavery in the United States, plantation slavery, without looking into where that land came from and at whose expense. We can't just talk about labor. Well, We need to talk about labor, but we also have to talk about land and the relationship between them. So part of it became came out of this project to understand, one is how sort of more on the right, the conservative side thinks about this, but I was just as intrigued on the left and liberal side, those who are potential allies and comrades, both historically and today, And the way in which I say that some of the people who I've learned the most from, in terms of frameworks, in terms of theories around race, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, James Baldwin, who I would not could not think about the world the way I do without them, both sort of saw, did see and did not see, recognized and then sort of, as they say, disavowed in their own implicit ways, the place of indigenous peoples, the role of land. And my my and also major narratives around Bacon's Rebellion, which is a major Bacon's Rebellion of the 17th century in Virginia is this foundational narrative that's all often invoked about where did whiteness come as a political identity? How was race used to divide classes when we had the opportunity for a cross racial class coalition where the working class works together against the elites and race becomes a way in which people are divided along racial lines instead of being united along class lines. Bacon's rebellion is often the foundational narrative we teach our students. This is how race comes to have a political meeting that divides people who should be working together in solidarity, we would hope. And the background of that story is, is involves settler colonial attacks on indigenous peoples and land. And that's part of this narrative is always there, but is never incorporated into the meaning of what we take out of this moment. Um, about not just whiteness, but white settler identity, not just about labor and class, but also land and disposition. Similarly, the Reconstruction era and the post-civil war, when we had this opportunity for, we would hope, building a more politically and economically just society that collapsed and, and it fell apart in. W.E.B. Du Bois, thankfully, narrates this for us. Land is many ways central to Du Bois's own vision of what would mean for a more economically free society for African-Americans, understandably. But the place of where that land comes from and even the relationship to land, and of course, indigenous people is in the background or not there. And, you know, somebody like Baldwin, who I think is very, obviously is, is defining figure in terms of thinking about race and the American failures of the American National Project, has many moments which he very much invokes conquest and colonialism and violence against indigenous people. At some points, very prescient and very observant and brilliant. At other points he sort of brackets indigenous peoples. And these are all fascinating figures. And my, my concern is not so much to critique them. They've given us so much, but we are inheritors of the Du Boisian framework of black reconstruction, of thinking through this, of the relationship between, between black radical politics and Marxism, right? We are the inheritors of Baldwin. And so as we go back and reread them and reproduce their frameworks, I want to make sure that we are not disavowing the place of indigeneity and the role of dispossession and settler colonialism. As we are engaging and trying to figure out what does white supremacy mean, what does anti-blackness mean? If we're trying to think about radical reconstruction projects along the lines of race, class, gender, indigeneity, we have to think about the relationship between labor and land. And I think part of the project is to not just say, well, there's these two narratives that need to be sort of understood in relationship to each other, but they shape one another. And I want to say white supremacy is really white settler supremacy. And I'm building upon somebody like Aileen Morton Robinson, whose great book about the white possessive really shapes a lot of my way to think about what whiteness means in relationship to capitalism, racial capitalism, and colonial capitalism. I don't think I'm creating something completely brand new. I'm trying to build upon discourses. And also engage with, I think, key frameworks and historical moments that I call major political memories, like around Bacon's Rebellion, like around Reconstruction, and major thinkers that we all should read Du Bois, Baldwin. And then the latter part of the project or the chapters are on work I've done before on the sports team name issue, you know, the Washington football team name, the Cleveland team name, stuff like that, in which there's some progress being made in getting rid of these names. A lot of the discourse around those have to do with the fact that these names are racist which is true. But they're also colonialist. They're about appropriation. They're about a reaffirming a form of genocide and elimination of indigenous peoples. I mean, there's a reason why you have these names after indigenous peoples and not other minority groups who are dealt with in other ways in terms of oppression and violence. But there's something about the appropriation and signification of indigeneity that needs to be understood as not only about racism, although that too, but also colonialism. So I reread it in that way. And another chapter, because if you're a political scientist in 2020 writing a book, you are obligated to write about Trump. It's just you have to do it or else you get kicked out of the field. I have a a chapter on Trump, which I say it's not the whole answer to Trump. But I think if you're trying to understand some of the complexities of Trumpism, including the fact that Trumpism, and we can see this with different forms of right moves, is certainly white supremacist. But it's also have you actually have a racially diverse group of people who do support Trump. And I think that part of it is a form of celebration of conquest and colonialism and xenophobia that I think you have to understand Trump's own and also Trump's perspective that is actually not just sort of disavowing and apologetic in some sort of like liberal way about the history of colonialism, but actually celebrates it. Trump openly celebrates conquest and the domination of lands and peoples. And I think that's a part of, and also this very much connects to extractive capitalism, to the relationship and his support of Israeli settler colonial expansion, the role of the borders and violence against migrants. I think this is this is racist, colonialist, capitalist, imperialist. I think it's also very much settler colonialist and about the celebration of conquest. So I try to offer a way to read through Trump through my perspective. And then the conclusion and a lot of the way in which I'm building upon how do we get out of this and how do we imagine better worlds builds upon indigenous and black activism working sometimes in tandem, sometimes not in tandem, and Indigenous and Black thinkers like Lady Long Soldier and Kim TallBear, Christina Sharp, Cedric Robinson, Leanne Simpson. I try to offer ways, other ways in which my readers can say, where do we look for images of how to bring together Black and Indigenous radical visions for everybody? Part of my opening is also to very much signal to white lefties that we have an, we have an implication in this as not just allies, but actually understanding that the fate and the the impact of settler colonialism and white supremacy and capitalism is bad for everybody. Us too, maybe not to the same degree intention immediately, but this is all going to be bad for all of us too. And we have an, we have an obligation to be involved in trying to abolish settler colonialism, white supremacy and capitalism and build a better world. We're not really engaging with the relationship between different forms of struggles. Um, For example, You know, in terms of police violence, which we know is at a higher percentage targeted towards black and Latinx people, but also an even higher percentage towards indigenous people. And this is not an impression Olympics. It is to say, how do we understand police violence, the carceral state in terms of the relationship between two race and colonialism? And I think understanding that is not only just being inclusive and stirring everybody in, but it's understanding like the intense sort of mission and power of the carceral state around land, around labor, and if I think we're not addressing indigeneity, indigenous people's experiences and politics and claims and settler colonialism, we're actually not seeing the oppressive power, but also I think the openings for resistance of the carceral state, of the settler state. We're not seeing the full picture or a fuller picture. I don't claim to give the full picture, but a fuller picture. And when you think about struggles over, you know, I mentioned team names, but over statues, over the names of universities, that may seem like merely symbolic, but I think actually it's people struggling over the meaning of the past for the present and trying to define what's sort our of past and our, our memory of it is going to define how we collectively articulate what matters to us today and how we move forward. So I, you know, I'm all for knocking down, you know, gassy jack. And I think part of it is then then we're trying to say that memory is not, we're not erasing the history of it, but we're trying to say that that does not articulate what we hope to be our vision of community, of care for one another, and a liberating future. And I think those are struggles over a politics of memory, not just history, which history is like we get all the facts straight, but the facts don't speak for themselves. People do in struggle. And I think the politics of memory are a key part of political struggle. And I want to sort of center on that.
0: So, the name of the book, Settler Memory, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how you define it in the book.
1: Settler Memory is not so much a forgetting of indigenous peoples in conquest and colonialism. There's certainly a, a great significant Part of the say white majority or the say I'll say the U.S. national majority I'm more familiar with that is incredibly ignorant. Like so, I'm not saying there's not a lot of ignorance out there, but what I'm really intrigued with is the way in which indigenous peoples' histories, sometimes in very caricature form, settler colonialism, are both sort of signaled and present in the larger discourse, the memory of say this nation of the U.S. at the one time. So it's not completely forgotten, but also disavowed as having anything to do with the present. So settler memory, I see, is actually just deeply constitutive of, in fact, and I focus on the U.S., but I'm happy to talk about Canada, deeply constitutive of a U.S., of an American settler identity, of both seeing or recognizing or in some way acknowledging the history of Indigenous peoples and colonialism, and then disavowing the active presence of settler colonialism and Indigenous politics today or in the contemporary period. And that's what settler memory is. I'm very distinct that it's not simply amnesia or forgetting or ignorance. And I'm not to say there's not a lot of ignorance out there. But as I say to my students, you know, education is great. I'm an educator. I hope it's great. But education's not enough. I mean, one is to have people read, understand history. But the next step is how do you then mobilize that to think about our present? And, you know, you can have people read the same historical moment and then go off because their interests shape them to say they're not going to do anything about what's going on. We have to think about the way in which material interests and the way people understand their present moment is shaped. I think the politics of memory are a key part of that, and not the only part of that. And so settler memory is, is what, as I say, a, a sort of a remembering and then a disavowal of the history and the present of indigenous peoples and settler colonialism. You spent a
0: lot of time on the book with James Baldwin and a number of other thinkers, W. B. Du Bois, as you mentioned. But I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to how James Baldwin articulated some of these things and what you found in it in terms of the work that you were doing with settler memory.
1: Yeah, Baldwin is, is, in some sense, he's, he's not so much the, the one who set me off on this path, because I've been thinking about this for a number of years, but I teach Baldwin every semester when I teach critical race studies, critical race and indigenous studies, for his powerful, I mean, the powerful move that Baldwin did for critical race analysis and for the centering of whiteness is in the 1960s, he starts, among others, he starts to turn around the narrative, say the problem of race in America is not the problem of the Negro problem, so-called of the other, it's the problem of whiteness. It's you white folks have to get your shit together. And so he starts to turn the lens around and I think he's among the many people most insightful about the core crime and brought at the core of the American project. And so I've constantly been a avid reader and, and have been edified and shaped by Baldwin's take on things. And he has a moment in his longer letter in The Fire Next Time when he says, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but basically got it. He says, the African-American, except for the Native American, which he puts the except for the Native American in parentheses, is the worst treated person in the U.S. history. And for me, I'm like, what is going on with putting except na- Native American in parentheses? It's his acknowledgment that there is a history there about conquest, colonialism and violence that shapes this country, as well as this violence towards Native Americans, as well as the violence towards African-Americans. Of course, he wants to acknowledge that that's there, but he wants to move on to a central topic of the relationship between white and black. of of anti-blackness and the role of whiteness in relationship to black Americans. He does this often throughout his piece, sometimes in more subtle ways, sometimes more assertive ways. In I Am Not Your Negro, the documentary, it's based upon Baldwin, there's an important scene where he's debating William F. Buckley and he talks about when he's a kid and he's watching cowboy movies and he's imagining that he's Gary Cooper the cowboy and he realizes at some point he's really actually one of the Indians. He's one of the people that is facing the white settler oppressor. And for him, it's not so much that as a Black man growing up in Harlem, he's concerned with the the cowboy, the frontier sheriff. He's concerned with cops, right? And so he positions himself as the Indian. Black Anishinaabe historian Kyle Mays has written very well about this too, this scene in in I Am Not Your Negro. He's somebody people should look into. And so you have various moments in Baldwin's um, native nonfiction writing when he is, he is signaling that we have to talk about conquest and colonialism, but he doesn't follow through. And I'm not expecting him to follow through. He does so much. But then I was like, this is when he sort of engages in a type of settler memory. He sees the problem. He sees the history, but does not fold that history into what is going on in his period of time in terms of how do we understand what white supremacy is. That said, as he moves more into the 60s and, and late 60s and 1970s, in some of his interviews... Baldwin is incredibly cutting and precise in in actually refusing settler memory. At one point, he talks about how Native Americans are the ones who who have paid the price for expansion, paid the price for every every inch of, of the frontier that's claimed, for the violence. And he connects contemporary movements of his time, 70s, around Wounded Knee, around Alcatraz, around the American Indian movement, Red Power, to what's going on with Black Power. He makes these connections. And there, Baldwin very insightfully, is refusing settler memory. He's, he's connecting the past of colonialism, the violence towards Native Americans, to the contemporary movement of Black power and red power in, in his time in the 70s. And so he's a fascinating figure for me because he's so insightful, but like anybody has his blind spots. At some point, he's sort of seeing the history of conquest. He's, he's naming it as as bad or worse than how African-Americans were treated. So he's seeing this relationship. But his project is not that. So he's, he's sort of signaling it, literally putting it in brackets and then moving on to his central topic. And at other points, especially a little later in his, his interviews, and it's met primarily his interviews, he's actually trying to bring this history together of conquest, of enslavement, of dispossession, of anti-Blackness, of genocidal approaches and treatment of Indigenous people. Bring them together to actually shape and point to contemporary politics in his time of black and red power. So I, I see him as somebody who both, who both actually does engage in reproducing settler memory at certain points in his his writing and his interviews, and then refuses it. He he refuses it to say no. We have to look at contemporary black and indigenous radical politics. So for me, he's a fascinating figure. And think about how he's connecting that to how he's seeing the possibilities. Because part of what Baldwin struggled with his whole. Career, I think, is what do we do with America? Is America a project that can be saved, or does have to be like abolished? I'm on the abolishment side, but he's like, he's trying to figure out, and I think he says in different points, he's not the only person to say it, can a black man be integrated into a burning house? And the burning house is America. And I think he's trying to struggle with the relationship in the 70s when he's really, you know, Martin Luther King has been murdered, Malcolm X has been murdered, Megar Evers, it's the 70s, and he's the sort of more optimistic or potentially optimistic Baldwin of the 1960s is sort of dashed by the 1970s. He's pretty pessimistic about the American project. And then you see him, I think, starting to address and center not only black radical politics, as much as he had a complicated relationship to black radical politics, and black radical politics had a complicated relationship to him, he's starting to make connections to indigenous radical politics. And so I think we can... I argue to my students that we can read Baldwin in a, a race studies course and an indigenous politics course. I think he can inform us of the relationship to it. And I would love if there is one thing that people who read that chapter might get out of it, is if you're te- teaching a Native American studies course or an indigenous politics course, you can see the way in which Baldwin can be part of that conversation. You referred
0: earlier on to kind of the solidarities within indigenous and black studies, but also tensions and, and areas of a continued discussion, I was wondering if you could articulate from your vantage point where those areas lie and, and and secondly, in terms of the reception of your own work you know as a as a white settler, someone from the suburbs of of Coquitlam writing in this way, how has your work been received within you know academic and political communities but also you're in an interesting vantage point because you're also illuminating two separate communities, these entanglements and perspectives. And wondering if you could talk about that as well.
1: The book does not sort of emphasize on the tensions as much, although I do articulate, for example, when I position myself, I do want to talk about some sort of popular narratives and approaches within, say, race studies right now, such as Afro-pessimism. And so I, I have a longer piece I think I'll be doing later on this, but I had a short piece when I sort of positioned my own approach in relationship to, say, Frank Wilderson in which I think there are tendencies, and I think I wouldn't say they're, they're becoming not as dominant because I think there's various ways of thinking about things. There's tendencies sometimes to see either Black or Indigenous perspectives as the foundational one, and, and the other one has to sort of build upon it. So either we have conquest first and then enslavement, or we have enslavement, then conquest, and you know, we have labor, then, and then one is the more foundational one and the other builds. And Wilderson and Afro-pessimism place enslavement and slavery as foundational. And then indigenous politics and indigenous peoples either have to uh, align on an experience of genocide with African-Americans and the enslavement perspective and the, the experience of non-being, or they so- they side with on the line of sovereignty with the settler with white. And so indigeneity does not have its own position in terms of its own history of concept of a political identity and politics and struggle. You also have indigenous critical theorists, some who will find settler colonialism as foundation and to see anybody who's not native as a settler. Right. And I, I, I do say in my piece that I think it's a complicated question. I am, as you say, ancestry of white settlers. I'm a white settler. I am not of any native extraction. I am not making any claims. I am a white settler, a cisgender man. But you do have the notion that, and I do say in the book, like, you know, I don't see black people as settlers. Because people who have, from the legacy of, of enslavement, but also constructed in a white supremacist society, have never been allowed to settle. To be perfectly honest, that's not to say individuals have not bought property, engaged in forms of settlement. Anybody can reproduce forms of of hierarchical oppressive relationships. But there's a well established history of, of African American communities being genocidally treated, violence and lynching and we and pogroms. So for me, one is I I want to provide a, a framework to talk about how we can bring together indigenous and black sort of histories, memories, not collapsing them to the same, uh, but also talking about how they shape one another and also shape one another in terms of how we think about settler colonialism and white supremacy. So I am intervening in the sense that I'm not on the side of, of a hierarchical view an oppression Olympic sort of thing. It's like one is foundational to the other, because I think the one, the history of, of these lands indicate that one can't understand one without the other. As I said, I don't think you can understand enslavement without, conquest and dispossession, and, I, and, and the reverse is the case. My optimism is I think that there's a lot of great work on the ground politically, but in writing, Leanne Simpson and Robert, Robin Maynard's new works, right, are trying to talk about this relationship. So I don't think I'm breaking new ground here. I think I'm trying to build on an effort to not say that we're going to collapse these understanding of these traditions of, of oppression and politics and radical struggle, but to talk about the relationship to one another, which certainly talks about potential tensions. I mean, the tensions can be, what does sovereignty mean? If we're recognizing indigenous sovereignty, what does it mean for people who have been historically oppressed? If we're going to talk about, say, out of Reconstruction, what does 40 acres and a mule mean for freed African-Americans for reparations? It's not to say that I would be opposed, of course, as a white settler to the notion of reparations. I'm completely supportive of it. But what does forty acres and a mule mean? What does land relations mean? What does labor mean? And I think if we split off one group of people's experience of oppression is around land, and the other around around labor, ignores the way in which Indigenous people have experienced labor oppression, and also African Americans have experienced violence and dispossession, and their own claims to land and relationships to land. So I'm trying to not not only in terms of particular peoples' histories and contemporary politics but also key conceptual categories in politics, labor, land, not to demarcate them as this is, this is the realm of one group of people. For Black people, it's about labor. For Indigenous people, it's about land. Yes, of course, there's stunning truths there, but also there is an overlap that needs to be addressed. And as we're thinking about our own political imaginaries to be able to grapple with that, there's not going to be easy answers. In terms of my own work, I certainly forefront in the book that I'm a white settler, and I actually am trying to, you know, you never know who your audience is. My audience is anybody who is is nice enough to read my darn book. If you want to read my book, you are my audience. Like I'm all for it, right? So I'm not going to say you're not my audience, but I, I and I, I don't think I'm necessarily telling things that a lot of like Black and Indigenous critical theorists don't know. You know, a lot of them might read like Dub or Neal, of course, and I get that, of course. I try in my book to make sure I'm referencing substantially all the Indigenous and Black critical theorists who have shaped me. And so my audience is whoever wants to read the darn book, but I certainly want to speak to a certain form of white left liberal perspective to see what it, what happens if, you know, I think about in the U.S. I say in the U.S. that we talk a lot about whiteness here, white privilege and so on and so forth. We talk very little about settler identity and settler commitments and settler privilege. And what happens if we on the so-called white left here, and I don't mean just the U.S., we could talk about Canada, we can talk about other settler contexts, but this is the one I've been living in for 30 years. Talk about what it means to have, say, white privilege, to use that overused phrase, as white settler privilege. Relationship not just to labor, but also land and settlement. In terms of how my work's been received, it's a little early. The book came out in November, so I'm still waiting. Reviews might come out that take me apart, and, and we'll see what happens. On the whole. I will say it's it's nice to have a book come out in the age of social media because then you get sort of m- more immediate responses. The nicest responses have been people who feel like the settler memory framework provides some way in which they can engage and understand their own work in understanding and analyzing historical moments and the relationship to the present. Because of third space of sovereignty, because of the work I've done in indigenous studies, I'm very much part of the larger indigenous studies scholarly network. So I know a lot of people who I respect and learn from. You know, the book is published in a critical indigeneity series at North Carolina Press with Jeannie O'Brien and Kehlani Kawanui, two brilliant uh, indigenous studies and indigenous scholars as the uh, series editors. And I wanted that because I wanted indigenous studies scholars and indigenous scholars to read the work and hold me accountable. And also that was read, the book was also read by black studies scholars, sort of peer review. And I wanted that. I think that my honest answer is I think generally in indigenous studies, because I'm more familiar with people in scholarship and have presented in different contexts that there is a general receptivity to where I'm going with the book. I was very honored to do a book talk with Circle at at University of Victoria, hosted by Heidi Stark, and it was a great conversation and really wonderful. And those who I have had read it in Black Studies have been very receptive to the Baldwin chapter and the Du Bois chapter. In terms of the larger framework, I'm still waiting to see what those who are involved in critical race studies, Black studies, will think about the book. I'm still less familiar with where that's going to go because I'm trying I'm trying to intervene in, and I think open up a different way in which critical race studies is done. And even critical Black studies, also critical indigenous studies, but I'm just more familiar with that world because I've been in it 20 years.
0: In terms of a decolonial theorist who are working today, who do you feel like you're in conversation with or who has influenced the work? You referenced a few people already, like Leon Simpson and others, but wondering, you know, who are your people that you draw inspiration from when you were thinking about writing this book and working through it that you know are, are, are working on the same terrain?
1: I mean, I think Aileen Morton Robinson's work on The White Possessive was really influential. I think that Aileen, I'm standing on her shoulders in some sense of thinking about whiteness as very much about forms of possessiveness. She means literally property, but also possessiveness over bodies. right? And so when I read her work and she, you know, her larger piece, which that book covers primarily Australia and larger conceptual stuff, but there's one chapter on U.S. race studies and whiteness studies. There's, you know, when I think about Kim TallBear's work for me, I think Kim is really trying to work out this really complex relationship between race and colonialism For her, obviously with Native American DNA, the complication relationship with how Native Americans are racialized and also in conversation with the racialization of African Americans, I think that's the type of work that shaped me in terms of thinking about having to have a much more nuanced relationship and understanding to what racialization means, its relationship to colonialism and how Native Americans or indigenous peoples are sort of produced within those sort of frameworks. So those are two people I put up front I mean in terms of uh, it's not decolonial, but but in terms of critical race and approaches to the relationship between race and class, uh, Stuart Hall is a major influence of mine in terms of how to you know put these together, you know Hall's famous line is that race is the modality through which class has lived. So we can't understand class experience without understanding race. And for me, I want to include colonialism and settler identity into that very experience. So, Kehalani Kawanui, I think her reading, her reading of Bacon's Rebellion, she and I have been in conversation of her, you know, when she's, she does this brief piece, really great piece in a um, journal issue that that's really a memorial to Patrick Wolfe starts to draw these same issues around what's going on in the memory of Bacon's Rebellion, and the seeing and non seeing of indigenous peoples. So those are a few of the people who I have either personally been in conversation with, but whose work I've been reading and very, very influenced by. Certainly the other part of it is I found myself in terms of other imaginaries being very influenced by uh, poets and, and fiction writers. So Layli Long Soldier, Oglala Lakota Poet, whose collection Whereas I think is just brilliant. And for me, I kept coming back to her work. I'm the least poetically inclined person you'll ever meet. But as I go back and I read like historical studies and political theory, which I'm entrenched in, I would return to the long soldier's own way when she she thinks she talks about what, as the title of her collection, The Whereas, which she's drawing from Barack Obama's so-called apology to Native Americans, where it includes... I think it's upwards of 15 sort of legalistic notions of whereas, which is like we're apologizing, but whereas none of this can be used for any legal case. So it's, it's a symbolic apology. And the whereas is a type of settler memory. We acknowledge this happened, but whereas we are not allowing this to be used for you to bring any sort of contention claim to us today. And I think that sort of way in which poetry allows for an opening up that long soldier brings in. I think Christina Sharpe, who of course is a, is a academic literary scholar, black studies scholar. I think her work in terms of the language of in the wake, the framing of in the wake of the past that is not past of slavery and after slavery has been incredibly influential to me. It's intellectual rigor and for, I think it's poetic imaginary. And so for me, folks like long soldier and Sharpe were people I kept coming back to um, and then, you know, brilliant indigenous feminist scholars, the, the recently late Lee Miracle, who I begin the piece with. I don't sort of have my one canon. I just find that there's so many powerful works, but those are the number of the people who I kept returning to. And the same shame of the book, or there's a lot of people who I was influenced by that didn't end up in the book. And some people don't end up in the narrative who deeply shaped. And I think about somebody else like Jodie Bird. Jody is like maybe cited one or two times. And that's not because she's not she doesn't shape the way I think about it. It's just the way the narratives are written and I put it together. But Jody's way in which she tries to I think we're in the same page in many ways. I mean, I think she's smarter than I am. So she puts it better about this relationship between black and indigenous experiences and the positioning in terms of race and colonialism. But Jodi's work, incredibly influent- influential to me. So those are a number of the people who I go back to. When I'm trying to recenter myself to figure out if I'm off track and to think, you know, that I, not that I agree with every word they say, nor they would with me, but certainly people who I've learned a lot from in terms of the, the notion of standing on the shoulders of like really smart people to do your work. Those are some of the people whose shoulders I'm standing on, and I'm hoping I'm not putting too much pressure on them. <laughs> is, there, is there anything you'd like to add, Kevin? The only thing I, I'd say is sort of my future work. I'm looking into stuff on racial capitalism. I'm actually writing, I'm part of a project on campuses and colonialism that is hosted by University of North Carolina, I think, but also Melinda Maynard Lowry, Steve Kantrowitz, and Alyssa Mount Pleasant. And we're, have, we're eventually there's going to be a volume kind of coming out of it. And my, my, my I said earlier that I'd written a much longer piece on, on Afropessimism and Frank Wilderson and what I see to the problematic positioning of indigeneity. I had to cut most of that out of the book because I had to focus what I wanted to say. But that larger argument is going to hopefully be part of that collection. Thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Uh, thank you so much, Am. It's really an honor to be on the uh, podcast.
0: Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Man City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Kevin Bruniel. Head to the show notes as always to find links to the resources mentioned by Kevin and to the full transcript of this episode. If you like our show, hit subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Below the Radar.